Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson. Our Whistle Stop today is Election Day, November 2, 4, 8, 7, and 2 in the years 1982, 86, 1994, 2006, and 2010. It's a special daisy chain episode of Whistle Stop. We're looking at the midterm campaigns in the recent past as a referendum on the incumbent president. Why are we doing this? Well, we're on the eve of an election here in the year of 2018, also known as the year of a future whistle stop. Already more than $5 billion has been spent on this election, according to the Center for Responsive Politics, a record twice what was spent on congressional races in 2008. Control of the House hangs in the balance with Democrats trying to regain control after they lost the People's Chamber in 2010. They have considerable advantages. An astounding 112 Democrats outraised Republican opponents in Republican-held seats between July and September of 2018, according to the Cook Political Report's David Wasserman. In the generic ballot, which asked people whether they would vote for a Democrat or a Republican, the Democrats have consistently been ahead and now, according to 538, have about an 8 percentage point advantage over Republicans. And the president's approval ratings are not very good, and that has historically shown a rough correlation with the outcome of his party's success on midterm election day. President Trump has a net negative approval rating of eight negative 8.9 percentage points, which would be the fourth worst out of the 19 midterms since World War II, according to 538's Nate Silver. The Senate is looking a little better for, de- for Republicans. Ten Democrats are holding office in states where Donald Trump won. And the chances seem slim that the GOP will lose the two-seat margin that gives the party its control over the Senate. The president is metaphorically on the ballot, and he wants to be. In a certain way, I'm on the ballot, so please go out and vote. And as a result, President Trump has been crisscrossing the country, stumping for candidates to improve his party's chances. He's not the first to have done this, and we'll take a look at the historical precedents after a word from our sponsor. It's not supposed to be the case that midterm elections are a referendum on the president, but that's the way things are. See, because, of course, the executive and the legislative are supposed to be two separate, free-floating institutions in in the three branches of the American system. As the good people at the Cook Political Report tell us, though, history has linked the two. That history tells us the president's party almost lose, almost always loses House seats. It's happened in 35 of the 38 midterm elections since the Civil War. That's 92% of the time. In the Senate, the pattern is not exactly as strong since 1913 when the 17th Amendment was adopted. Uh, the president's party has lost seats in 19 out of 26 elections. That's 73%. So, and there have been two times when that's, that's not been the case Uh, In 1998, there was a backlash against the impeachment of President Clinton that helped Democrats gain House and Senate seats. And in 2002, after the 9-11 attacks and while uh, military activity was still taking place in Afghanistan, uh, President Bush and the Republican Party picked up seats in both chambers. But let's take a, a look back at these key races that we've picked out here in these years. The first is 1982. We asked people on our national exit poll if their votes for a member of Congress uh, were uh, meant as a referendum on President Reagan. And uh, by and large, they said yes. And by and large, they said that uh, they were voting against President Reagan. And finally, we asked uh, Mr. Reagan's basic message, do you want to stay the course or not? And people uh, narrowly, but uh, by a few points, said no. They wanted to change. 
That was election night 1982, and that's Bruce Morton of CBS. Crystal ball watchers would not have predicted such rummy results for the Republican Party when they peered into their globes after the presidential election of 1980. Ronald Reagan arrived at the White House after that election the way a hero president of his Hollywood career might have. In the 1980 Reagan-Bush ticket carried 44 states and swept along enough Senate seats to give Republicans control of the body for the first time since 1954. In the House, Republicans picked up 34 seats. As Morris P. Fiorina writes in Elections and the Economy in the 1980s, Short and Long-Term Effects, quote, all of this set off talk of a turn to the right, a Reagan revolution, and a new Republican majority. But then reality arrived and popped all the party balloons. In the early 1980s, the U.S. was in the deepest post-World War II economic downturn since the Great Depression. The unemployment rate hovered about 7, 8, 7 or 8 percent in 1981. And this is what Reagan was, of course, supposed to solve when he took office in 1981. But one year later in the election year, an unemployment was at 10 percent. And here's how Congressman Floyd Fithian, who was running against the incumbent senator in Indiana, Richard Lugar, here's how he put it on the campaign trail in 1982. It is clear, said Fithian, that Reaganomics have failed, utterly failed. And it is also clear to me, at least, that we absolutely must change that policy. President Reagan's pitch was summed up in an address to the nation a month before Election Day in 1982. He opened... By nodding to the muddy economic picture, some good news, some bad news, but he acknowledged that the unemployment rate was awful. He then sought to show empathy with those voters who were struggling. But let me just give you one example that speaks for so many of you. A letter from a wife and mother named Judith who lives in Selma, Alabama. Dear Mr. President, she writes, it's 3.45 a.m., And for over an hour, I've been unable to sleep. This morning, I need very much to believe in something. I'm not writing so much as an individual, but as a representative of so many. We need to talk with you, to believe that you hear us. After years of training and experience, we can't find jobs. National unemployment figures sound almost healthy, next to the almost 19% we're enduring in Selma. The costs for basic survival are nearly beyond belief. There may never be a house, home of our own, that dream we've worked for for so many years. We have said no to so many things. We're afraid and confused. We've worked hard. We conserved. We planned. We were frugal, careful. We feel so out of control. We don't want a handout. We just want to help make the system well again. We must know that in the tons of bureaucracy, we've not been lost. We want to help. We want a better life, and we're willing to work for it. We believe. We must. It's all we have. Well, Judith, I hear you. I hear you. A key phrase from President Reagan. As an aside, we should remember that... In a president's skill set, as Ronald Reagan exemplifies here, the quality of empathy is crucial. It's not just for when presidents are called to console a nation after a disaster. It's what works politically, Reagan thought. 
And it's what the political brains at the time thought the nation needed to hear. Reagan then closed this speech on the economy, given a month before the election in 1982, with another important phrase in politics. See if you can spot it. Together, we've chosen a new road for America. It's a far better road. We need only the courage to see it through. I know we can. Throughout our history, we Americans have proven again and again that no challenge is too big for a free, united people. Together, we can do it again. We can do it by slowly but surely working our way back to prosperity that will mean jobs for all who are willing to work and fulfillment for all who still cherish the American dream. We can do it, my fellow Americans, by staying the course. So there are the twin messages. I hear you and stay the course. There was no Twitter, but Ronald Reagan nevertheless was able to put his entire election message in a tight little package. Reagan didn't just give speeches from the White House. He hit the road for Republican candidates. He asked voters not to turn on his program after only a, quote, 13-month trial. He claimed that his policy of lowering inflation while unemployment increased was a painful corrective to the policies that he had inherited. Democrats charged, according to the Chicago Tribune, that Reagan's course was favoring, quote, a privileged few. They did not hear Judith, who the president mentioned in his speech. Reagan, who had entered office under the sunny rays of an FDR-like optimism, was suddenly being compared to another president, as Lou Lou Cannon writes in President Reagan, The Role of a Lifetime. The president arrived at a campaign stop in Minnesota in February of 1982 and was greeted by a banner proclaiming, Welcome, President Hoover. Homeless advocates erected tent cities around the White House, calling them Reagan ranches, trying to conjure the Depression-era shantytowns known as Hoovervilles. Where it really wasn't working for the president was with those blue-collar voters who had voted for him just two years earlier, the so-called Reagan Democrats. Here's how the New York Times described one voter. The article is entitled, Blue-Collar Anger at Reagan Poses Threat to Republicans. Bill Ferruncia, a burly 30-year-old tool and dye maker in the General Motors Fisher Body Plant at West Miffin, Pennsylvania, voted for Ronald Reagan for president in 1980. He is now immensely displeased with Mr. Reagan, and to express his displeasure, he says he will vote Democratic on Tuesday. I thought Reagan was great in 1980, but now I tie him to other Republican candidates, and I think the Democrats have the best chance of ending the recession, the automobile worker said. Give Reagan credit for lowering inflation, but the cost isn't worth it. The president's stay-the-course message threw a frame around all of the races, hoping to give political cover to Republicans running everywhere who had supported Reagan's program. But the problem with that frame and the place it was coming from is that it also turned the election into a referendum. Talking about 1980, Broder writes, that was as close to a mandate as we are ever likely to see in this country. With our loose-knit, non-ideological parties... (laughs) One has to chuckle there at the moment. Anyway, carrying on. Ronald Reagan, an issue-oriented man, all of his political life laid out a fundamental critique of the policies of the Democratic administration and Congress. And he suggested very clearly the direction of the changes he would make. 
Had that program produced the kind of vigorous economy that Reagan and other advocates predicted when lobbying for its passage in 1981, this midterm election would have been an endorsement of, and not a referendum on, Reaganomics. Quite plausibly, given the GOP's advantages in money and organization, it would have been the opportunity for the Republicans to establish themselves as a long-term party of government. It is plainly not going to be that. Broder went on to say that Republicans are playing this election not to lose, and that is different from playing to win. Voters, like that blue-collar tool-and-die man, weren't the only ones distancing themselves from the president. Candidates were, quote, were running, quote, every man for himself campaigns across the country, a contrast from the United Party of 1980, where Republican boats had all washed ashore on the same wave. And there was plenty of room at the inn and stocked wine cellars and capons for everyone and their crew. You came across amusing newspaper clippings in the research from the race of 1982. Here's a piece in the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Minnesota Republicans' real opponent is President Reagan. Ronald Reagan is on trial here in, in the Northlands, writes the piece, or goes the piece. But if voters in this beleaguered state reject his platform in next Tuesday's election, it is United States Senator David Durenberger who will have to walk the plank. Durenberger, 48, a moderate Republican, once considered a heavy favorite to win re-election, is running hard and admittedly a bit scared as Tuesday's election approaches. Linked, for better or worse, to a president with whom he has not always agreed. I felt from the very beginning that Ronald Reagan is the only man who can beat me this year, Durenberger said after a breakfast meeting with supporters during a suburban campaign swing. Who wrote that piece? David Axelrod, who would later drop out of journalism and start running Democratic campaigns, including those for Barack Obama. Here on election night in 1982, you can hear a few things in this Walter Cronkite interview of Walter Mondale, senator from Minnesota. First, Cronkite recaps what uh, is happening that evening. Turns out the pollsters were wrong, another thing that would seem familiar to modern ears. And then you can hear Mondale, who tries to frame the wipeout of the income of the sitting president, since Mondale is trying to position himself to be the party's nominee in 1984, which he ultimately becomes. And this is a highlight of what we're likely to see on election night in 2018, which is the unofficial pop of the starter's pistol that will be fired for the 2020 Democratic presidential primary campaign. Here now is Cronkite interviewing Mondale. It looks like the Republicans are not doing as well in percentages, even where they're winning, as might have been uh, contemplated. What do you think that will do to President Reagan's chances of staying the course through the next Congress? I think the public is really voting rather decisively today to change that course. I think I've traveled this country more than any, anybody in the last two years, and it was clear to me that people were suffering, that they didn't think this policy was working, that they were concerned about other issues like the environment and social security, and that they wanted to change. In the end, Republicans lost 26 seats in the House in the election of 1982, but they gained one seat in the Senate, retaining control of the Senate. Before the election, Reagan was able to pass his program in the House through a coalition of Republicans and bull weevil Democrats, conservative Democrats so-called, because the bull weevil was an impossible pest to eradicate. 
The idea being that while Republicans were coming on strong in the South, there were still Democrats could not be eradicated. Anyway, after after 1982, Democratic House leader Tip O'Neill, speaker, would have was able to have then legislative leverage with the, that boll weevil coalition being shrunk by the election success of Democrats in 82, and also a weakened president. Reagan's approval rating had dropped from a high of 19, of 67 in 1981 to 35% after the 82 elections. 1986. In 1986, Ronald Reagan once again strapped on the spurs and rode the campaign steed down the dusty trail. This time, he was the gloriously re-elected second-term president. Walter Mondale tried to lay those tracks for the presidency in that interview with Walter Cronkite in 1982, but the Mondale White House train had derailed badly, as both these horse and train metaphors are dangerously in peril of doing. The Gipper won an overwhelming 525 electoral votes to Walter Mondale's 13 in the election, presidential election of 1984. So if there was a year to break the historical midterm curse... This was the one for Reagan to do it. The focus was on the Senate. The Democratic lock on the House was hard to break. Republican control in the upper House, though, had helped Reagan in his battle against the democratically controlled House. Treaties and Supreme Court nominations, of course, if nothing else, can those are Senate matters. Those would be easier, of course, or continue to be easy if the Republicans continued to hold on to the upper House. Of the 34 contested seats in 86, Republicans were defending 22, Democrats only 12. They needed to pick up four seats to take the majority. History was on their side. Presidents in their sixth year took poundings. It's known as the sixth-year itch. Franklin Roosevelt had gotten clobbered in 38. Ike had lost in 58. Still, the Gipper, traveling and traveling big. He clocked in 24,000 miles, 54 appearances in 22 states, promising that a second boom was just around the corner. He campaigned in 82, but in 86, he really put his back into it. Here we have President Reagan speaking at a campaign rally for Senator Paula Hawkins, highlighting her accomplishments and international policies. Now, I'm also here in Miami in support of another lady, a gutsy individual who has played a unique and irreplaceable role putting America back on the right track. The progress that we've talked about here today could not have happened without her. I hope each and every one of you will do everything you can to see that Paula Hawkins is re-elected to the United States Senate. Right. Now, now, it's not good enough just to vote for her. I'm asking you to get your friends to vote for her, to walk your precincts, to organize the phone banks. It's a lot to ask. But do it for your families, for Florida, for your country. And if I might be presumptuous a bit, do it for the Gipper. Reagan framed the midterms as whether to hand the government back to the liberals or move forward with the conservative agenda of the 1990s. In Georgia, he attacked the economy of his predecessor. That tax and tax, spend and spend crew left our country with negative growth, double-digit inflation, and the highest interest rates since the war between the states. As you know from our, your close listening to our Bork episode, Reagan also brought out the old boogeymen about who would control the committees in the Senate if the Democrats won. He mentioned Senator Edward Kennedy by name and Joe Biden by name. Over and over, the Democratic leadership has tried in the Senate to torpedo our choices for judges, said the president. That's where Jim Broyhill, he was the candidate running in Georgia, can make all the difference. Without him, the Republican majority in the Senate will find liberals like Joe Biden and a certain fellow from Massachusetts deciding who our judges will be. 
I bet you would agree. I'd rather have a judiciary committee headed by Strom Thurmond than one run by Joe Biden or Ted Kennedy any day. The election of 1986 increased the emphasis on television ads, political campaign consultants, and the cut and thrust that we hate today and that we've hated for quite some time in president in, in midterm campaigns, negative ads clotting up the TV all day. David Broder found Beth Brown, 34, who lived in Washington State. She said, I can't really decide. It's the ads. They're so good. But you don't know who to believe. One guy is saying the other is doing all these crummy things, and the other one says, I don't do things like that. Just look at my record. But I don't remember which one it is. The public was irritated by all of this, but it was a process in 1986 that we see today. Professional consultants had at that time discovered a far greater public tolerance for negative ads. And that tolerance for negative ads was in, was reinforced by the use of nightly tracking polls to measure uh, how much damage each round of the, those ads were doing. And they were getting positive feedback, which led to more of them. Candidates were, were tended to have more marketing experts and political strategist types than they had had before. And David Broder writes something that we have certainly seen more and more of today. He says, more often than at any time in 26 years, I've been out on this beat. I found myself the only reporter traveling with a candidate on his rounds with the voters. The idea being that conflict was covered and not the actual campaign, what the voters cared about and what the voter and what the candidate was actually talking to the voters about out on the stump. One trend that we see in 82, and we see it again in 86, is how many candidates were running away from the ideology of the movement that in 1980, when Reagan was elected, was seen as as so powerful it was going to redefine politics. Here's a Washington Post story with the headline, Candidates Stray from Reagan Line, Television Ads for GOP Hopefuls Stress Government Activism. The piece goes on, in every region of the country, GOP candidates for the House and Senate are veering away from the anti-government free market doctrine that has been the hallmark of Reagan-era conservatism. Instead, in their television commercials this campaign season, they are representing themselves as members of the Party of Social Welfare, Public Works, and, Con- and Constituent Service. So that can be a claim, right? You can, make an, you can make that assessment about Republican candidates. But this piece goes further. It quotes the director of political advertising for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. So this is the kind of thing where campaigns get so nervous and we've seen a little bit of this in 2018 they get so nervous about their ability to reach these crossover voters to tie you know for candidates to run independently of their president um or run independently of the ideology of their president that might be unpopular that they go and they talk about their strategy to reporters because while you might think you might want to hide strategy uh in this case being explicit about it gets it covered and that at least communicates the underlying message to voters. Okay, so here's that post piece. It reads, If the Republican label weren't affixed to these commercials, the candidates touted in them would be virtually indistinguishable from the stereotypical Walter F. Mondale Democrats, whom Republicans have assailed in the past for their obsession with delivering federal largesse to constituent groups. There's no doubt it's the position for a candidate, says the director of political advertising for the Republican National for the National Republican Senatorial Committee. It positions them as getting things done and as compassionate. It's tough to beat an effective combination. It puts ideology aside, supplants it. 
The piece goes on to point out that Republicans are running pure pork ads, which means ads boasting about their ability to deliver bridges and roads to their states and congressional districts. They're doing things for individuals. Then you have the category of helping a group of people through Social Security or veterans' benefits. So here you have President Reagan coming to office promising to shrink government, and now you have Republicans running for office in 86 boasting about what government can do for people. Here's a line that should make you chuckle. It's from the Democratic National Committee chairman trying to spin why voters are going to vote for Democrats even though there's a Republican president and a lot of, independ- and a lot of Republican incumbents in 1986. Here it is uh, in a Washington Post piece um, talking about the Democratic uh, Committee chairman. He and other de-alignment advocates say President Reagan has helped the Republicans overcome their 50-year status as the minority party in American electorate in the American electorate, only to find that partisan ties no longer mean much to voters. They see a free-floating electorate picking candidates without regard to labels, largely on the basis of their records, their images, and their television ads. That de-aligned future never came to pass. In the end, in 1986, history followed its predictable pattern. The Republicans swept in by Reagan's transformative election in 1980 were swept right back out again. The Republican Party lost eight seats in the Senate and five in the House. Control of the Senate switched back to the Democrats. And a Supreme Court nominee like Robert Bork would have to go through a Judiciary Committee chaired by a Democrat. In this case, Democrat Joe Biden. 1984. Do you like campaigning again? It seems like you were just campaigning. Oh, no. You like this? I do like it. That was Bill Clinton in 1984 talking to Larry King. It was a conversation with talk show hosts of just the kind that Bill Clinton had used to get himself elected in 1992. And the president was pulling out all the stops to try to repeat his comeback success from that year. It would not work. In his autobiography, Clinton would say, quote, Voters hit me between the eyes with a two-by-four in the 1994 midterm elections. Bill Clinton was in better shape than Donald Trump when he faced the electorate in 2018. Trump's approval rating is in the low 40s at the moment. Clinton was above 50. But he had two big bits of trouble. His failed health care plan had riled up the Republicans, and his advocacy for the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement had dispirited Democrats. Bill Clinton regretted, in the end, getting out on the campaign trail. Here's how he wrote about it in his autobiography, My Life. By October, the polls we were getting didn't look too bad, but the atmosphere on the campaign trail still didn't feel good. Before we left the Middle East, Hillary had called our pollster, Dick Morris, for his assessment. Dick took a survey for us, and the results were discouraging. He said that most people didn't believe that the economy was getting better or that the deficit was declining, and that they didn't know about any of the good things the Democrats and I had done, and that the attacks on Gingrich's contract weren't working. That's the contract for America. My approval raising had risen above 50% for the first time in a while, and voters responded positively when told about the family leave law, the 100,000 new police in the crime bill, the education standards and school reform, and our other achievements. Dick said we could cut our losses if the Democrats would stop talking about the economy, the deficit, and the contract and concentrate instead on their popular legislative accomplishments. I should uh, note a little aside here. This theory that accomplishments and talking about them on the campaign trail is the way to go may be one of the things tested in 2018. Republicans passed a tax cut and have talked about how they would campaign on that. But the tax cut is not very popular 
Uh, And so Republicans aren't really much campaigning for it in districts that are up for grabs. The question is whether, even if it were popular, Republican voters would rush to the polls to reward them for that or whether in midterm elections the energy is really with the people who are on the negative end, the people who are voting against something, which in this case in 2018 is voting against President Trump. Anyway, back to the Clinton autobiography. Speaking here, this is Bill Clinton talking about Dick Morris, his pollster. And he recommended that when I return to Washington, I should stay off the campaign trail and remain presidential, saying and doing things that would reinforce my higher ratings. Morris believed that would do more to help Democrats than my plunging back into the political fray. Neither recommendation was followed. (laughs) So this is why that happened. I called back to the White House. This is a little further on in the book uh, by Clinton. I called back to the White House from the Middle East trip, and I said, I thought that on my return, I should stay at work and make news rather than go back out on the campaign trail. When I got home, I was surprised to find my schedule packed with trips to Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Rhode Island, New York, Iowa, Minnesota, California, Washington, Delaware. Apparently, when my own poll numbers started rising, Democrats around the country asked that I campaign for them. They had been there for me. Now I had to be there. For them. Here's how the Wall Street Journal covered those campaign trips from Bill Clinton. In a shift in strategy, many Democratic candidates now want President Bill Clinton to campaign at their side, Mr. And this is an article that is written on the 2nd of November, 1994, very close to the election. It's a last minute push, really. Mr. Clinton's Tuesday's visit to Michigan shows how the tactics have changed. When he came here last month, candidates such as Senate hopeful Bob Carr were in the audience. Tuesday, there was barely enough room for all the candidates to squeeze on stage at a noisy, balloon-filled rally. And Mr. Carr wasn't hiding anymore. Instead, he embraced the president. President Clinton, we welcome you, he bellowed. We're proud to have your leadership bringing peace in the Middle East. We're proud to have you in our state. The peace continues. As Election Day approaches, Mr. Clinton has become less radioactive, as one Democratic strategist said, and the president is now seen as an asset to some candidates. This is an important thing to talk about because what happens is sometimes late in the day in these campaigns, either the campaigns convince themselves or they just spin themselves crazy, arguing that, no, we're doing great. Uh, we're we're going to do, um, you know, we're going to confound all the pollsters. Everything's looking wonderful. We want the president on our team. It's all great. So these last-minute pushes, whether they're fake spin or, in fact, something that everybody believes, can happen in races where things nevertheless turn out quite badly for them. The Republicans had shown good discipline in the closing days touting the contract with America, which allowed them to end on an optimistic uh, note in the campaign after two years of hammering Clinton. That contract included a number of operational reforms to the House. Uh, There was a Fiscal Responsibility Act, which was about the line-item veto and uh, balancing the budget, taking back our Streets Act, which was an anti-crime package, Personal Responsibility Act about teen pregnancy and welfare, the Dream Restoration Act, which was a child had a child tax credit part of it, the National Security Act, which would keep troops from, from serving under the United Nations. These were all parts of the contract for America. In the end, it was a real victory for the contract and for Republicans and a decisive defeat for the president. The Democrats lost eight seats in the Senate and 52 seats in the House. Republicans took both chambers for the first time since 1952 and the majority of governorships in what was dubbed a Republican revolution. The depth of the victory was this startling fact. No sitting Republican governor, senator, or representative was defeated. 
It was the worst whipping of a president's party in 100 years, wrote the Baltimore Sun, since Grover Cleveland was in the White House. But one thing to remember, while this was, of course, a whipping for the president, it wasn't just Bill Clinton who was unpopular. Democrats who controlled Congress were very unpopular. Here's a New York Times piece by Kit Seeley. Heading into Tuesday's election, voters are profoundly alienated from their elected representatives and from the political process and confess to a deepening powerlessness and pessimism over the future of the nation. Discussed with Congress is near the record high, and more than 60% of those polled were unable to name an elected official they admired. The public has not appeared so disconsolate since 1979 when the nation was gripped by economic stagnation and Americans were taken hostage in Iran. Now people say they are frustrated and cynical and feel that life has veered out of control. To get back control, voters swept the entire old guard out and put Newt Gingrich, the Republican congressman from Georgia who had been the Napoleon of the successful and revolutionary Republican victory, he was now the leader of a new age. This is truly a wildly historic night. I mean, this is just... In the end, it wouldn't be the realignment some had thought. Newt Gingrich would find himself out of Congress in 1998 after Republicans who had impeached the president with Speaker Gingrich at the helm lost five House seats to Democrats, breaking the historic six-year curse for parties of the president in the White House. 2006. After the attacks of September 11, 2001, President Bush's approval ratings rose into the 90s. In 2002, he broke the modern trend by helping his party pick up seats in the election of the, the midterm election. The GOP picked up eight seats in the House and two in the Senate. Time magazine put a picture of the president and Karl Rove on the cover with the line, how they aced their midterms. By 2006, after years of a difficult and controversial war in Iraq, that put everything up in the mixer. And, by the way, also the mishandling of 2005. At this point now, the president's approval ratings had dropped to 40%, and they were even lower in some polls. Just two days before Americans voted in the midterms of 2006, a Baghdad court had delivered a guilty verdict for Saddam Hussein. President Bush made this announcement. Today, Saddam Hussein was convicted and sentenced to death by the Iraqi High Tribunal for the massacres committed by his regime in the town of Dujail. Saddam Hussein's trial is a milestone in the Iraqi people's efforts to replace the rule of a tyrant with the rule of law. It's a major achievement for Iraq's young democracy and its constitutional government. The Bush administration optimistically said the verdict showed Iraq's independent judicial system was working. It was a sign that the war-torn country was getting back on track. But that's not the way Democrats had seen it. They'd run the entire campaign about prosecution of the war, and this one success for the people of Iraq and for the president's policy was not going to get in the way. Tom Lantos of California, who was really the dean of Democrats in the House, Uh, on foreign policy matters, said the verdict was just, but it, quote, must not distract Americans from the more pressing issue, the need for a change in the direction of our country's policy towards Iraq, both the conduct of the war effort and our pathetic, corruption-stained attempt at reconstruction. The war in Iraq was what drove voters on both sides to the polls. According to the final New York Times-CBS News poll before the election, Americans cited Iraq as the most important issue affecting their vote. And majorities of Republicans and Democrats said they wanted a change in the approach. Just 29% of Americans approved of the way President Bush was managing the war. Nearly 70% 
said Mr. Bush did not have a plan to end the war, and 80% said Mr. Bush's latest effort to rally public support for the conflict amounted to a change in language, but not policy. Here's a quote from NBC. Most of the people who are out there fighting are probably around the same age I am, said Emily Tira, 18, of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Having older people make the decisions to send young people out to fight for what they believe in instead of what the younger generation believes in is very frustrating. Well, that frustration was taken out on the president's party. Republican Senate losses amounted to six seats, and in the U.S. House, they lost 30 seats. With the help of two independent senators, Senator Lieberman of Connecticut and Bernie Sanders of Vermont, you may have heard his name, the Democrats were able to regain both houses of Congress, Nancy Pelosi, became the first woman to become Speaker of the House. In a news conference after the loss, the president used a characterization that stuck for all time. Say, why all the glum faces? Yesterday, the people went to the polls, and they cast their vote for a new direction in the House of Representatives. And while the ballots are still being counted in the Senate, it is clear the Democrat Party had a good night last night. And I congratulate them on their victories. I mean, look, this is a close election. The, if you look at race by race, it was close. The cumulative effect, however, was not too close. It was a thumping. It was a thumping. And in an election that had been a referendum on the Iraq war, this news came one day after the midterm elections. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was stepping down as defense secretary. Nominated in his place would be Robert Gates. 2010. The 2010 elections were President Obama's first midterm test, and he failed it. On the eve of the 2010 presidential, his presidential approval rating stood at 46 percent, about where Donald Trump's is today if you look at the average of the polls. Trump's a little bit lower. But the president at the time, President Obama's health care plan was deeply unpopular with Republican voters. Two years after he had changed history and swept presidential politics, the first African-American in the office. He was then, in 2010, facing a grim outcome, exacerbated by fears that the economy was not recovering fast enough from the recession of 2007 to 2009. Here's a piece in The Guardian. Barack Obama's final midterm rally highlights declining popularity. Barack Obama sought to rekindle the spirit of the 2008 election today at a final campaign rally of the midterm elections. But thousands of empty seats testified that the love affair with the electorate is long over. Speaking in Cleveland at the end of four-state whirlwind weekend tour to try to prevent a Democratic political meltdown in tomorrow's Tuesday elections, Obama acknowledged the pain recession had created but said life under Republicans would be a lot worse. The Republicans would cut taxes for millionaires and billionaires, said the president, and leave the working class to fend for themselves. You don't have a job? Tough luck, said President Obama. You're on your own. You don't have health care? Too bad. You're on your own. You're a young person who can't afford to go to college? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You're on your own, President Obama said. More than 100 congressional races were considered highly competitive in that 2010 campaign. The Democrats lost the House of Representatives but held on by a pinky nail to the Senate. Democrats lost six in the Senate and 63 in the House. This is the way Barack Obama addressed the outcome in his post-election news conference. This is something that I think every president needs to go through uh, because the, the responsibilities of this office are so enormous and so many people are depending on what we do. And in the rush of activity, uh, sometimes... Uh, We lose track of 
the ways that we connected uh, with folks uh, that got us here in the first place. Now, I, I'm not recommending for every future president that they take a shellacking like, they, like I did last night. Um, you know, the, I, I'm sure there are easier ways to learn these lessons. Uh, but I do think that uh, this is a growth process and an evolution. And the relationship that I've had with the American people uh, is one that uh, built slowly, peaked at this incredible high, and then during the course of the last two years, as we've uh, together gone through some very difficult times, uh, has gotten rockier and tougher. Uh, and, you know, it's going to, I'm sure, have some more ups and downs uh, during the course of me being in this office. Republicans in this election had run on a modified version of the Gingrich strategy from 1994. They offered a contract-like set of proposals, but it was no contract for America. It was pretty thin on the theory that antipathy towards Barack Obama was fueling their voters. Why give voters something to be upset about, which is to say specific agenda items that might give both voters something to be upset about and something Democrats could shoot at. Instead, Republicans pitched themselves as a bulwark against President Obama's legislative priorities. But inside the success in 2010 was a future challenge for the Republican Party. The groundswell of opposition to which GOP leaders were appealing became its own movement in a way that had not been the case in 1994. The Tea Party movement, which was formed in response to President Obama's mortgage relief plan to ameliorate the damage from the recession, would drive Republican politics and ultimately set the conditions for the election of Donald Trump as restive forces within the GOP sought wholesale change in Washington, which their leaders would never deliver until a new kind of leader arrived at the head of the party after the election of 2016. One of the real big ones we didn't include in this episode may be the best example of a president whiffing it big on a midterm election pitch in 1938. As you whistle-stoppers know, FDR tried to purge his party of Democrats who had not gone along with him. Not only did he fail miserably in that effort, only unseating one uh, House Democratic member, he was the leader of a party in 1938 that had a huge helping of failure pie. Before the elections came in, FDR had made one last-ditch attempt at rallying the nation. As war raged in Europe, he made a radio address saying, quote, Remember that in these brave days in the affairs of the world, we need internal unity, national unity. For the sake of the nation, that is good advice. It is not advice that voters took. Democrats lost 72 seats in 1938 and in the House, uh, in the House and seven seats in the Senate. Uh, though we should hasten to add that the parties were less homogeneous back then than they are now. Uh, so a vote against a Democrat might have had nothing to do with voting against a Democratic president because the senator might have actually had opposing views from the party's president. Nevertheless, it was seen as a rebuke to the president for both his court packing plan, his attempt to expand the powers of the presidency. Will the midterm elections of 2018 beat a referendum on Donald Trump? He says he wants voters to vote as if they believe it is he that they are voting for. But if Republicans lose, the president also contains this view, which is that he doesn't think it will say anything about his presidency. I think I'm helping people, the president told the Associated Press. I don't believe anybody's ever had this kind of an impact. One thing is certainly true regardless of the outcome of the 2018 midterm elections. President Trump certainly has had an impact. 
That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald. And he's also one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Henson is out there crunching through all of this material. She is indefatigable. The combination of Rosenwald and Henson is what makes all of this go. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helps make this episode happen through the wires at the end of this microphone. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Music